Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. All right, if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and turn to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. We're going to briefly stop by that passage from Revelation, but we will eventually land there in the book of 1 John. Uh, If you have trouble finding 1 John, it's almost at the very back of your Bible. If you get to the part about dragons and lakes of fire, you've gone too far. Um, So feel free to head back to 1 John. Uh, And believe it or not, if you're like new to Christianity in general, new to the Bible, uh, 1 John is actually not the first book named John in the Bible. We did it that way just to confuse you. So you're welcome for that. But 1 John chapter 1 is where we will be eventually. Uh, If you are brand new here this morning, and I would imagine we have at least a few new faces, second week of school, right? Or I guess end of first week of school. So we got a few new faces. Uh, You have hopped in with us on week three of a series that we're calling in Knoxville as it is in heaven. And basically we've been talking about how God's ultimate desire for his world is not just to evacuate all Christians up into heaven when they die one day, but how ultimately God's desire is to bring heaven to earth. That's his commander's intent. That's what he's after at the end of the day. And and we've been talking about how he wants to do that one day in the future, bring heaven to earth, but also how he wants to use us as his people to participate in those efforts in the meantime. He wants to use us as followers of Jesus to work with him in bringing more and more of heaven to earth. So we're spending the rest of our series talking about a number of different ways that we do that, a number of different ways that we participate with God in those efforts. So each week, we're we're looking at one aspect of what heaven will be like, or maybe more specifically, what the new heavens and new earth will be like one day. And then we're talking about how we practice for that future day now, how we prepare for heaven, how we participate with God in bringing heaven to earth. So last week, we talked about the idea of intimacy with God. And we said maybe that's a weird word to some people, but the Bible makes the point over and over again that we get to experience one day in the future, in the new heavens and the new earth, we get to experience perfect, unbroken, unhindered intimacy with God forever. And so then we talked about we practice for that day, we prepare for that day by learning how to live in intimacy with God Now, that was last week. This week, we are going to look at the twin practices of confession and repentance. Now, if if this is your first time back around church in a while, I, I realize that there may not be two words in the English vocabulary that sound more churchy and fundamentalist and stuffy than the words confession and repentance. Maybe just by me bringing those words up, you were expecting me to like grab a sandwich board sign with big red block letters and go yell at some people on Market Square. I understand that those words have that sort of connotation. But I think it's, it's really unfortunate that those words have that sort of reputation in our world because in reality, there may not be two more beautiful words for a follower of Jesus in the world than confession and repentance. Absolutely beautiful concepts. So it's kind of like this. Maybe this will help. Um, 
There's a new restaurant on Gay Street. Some of you may have tried it. It's called Copita. Has anybody been there? Yeah, a few people. So it used to be two different restaurants. It was Copita Meat and Copita Vegan. Now they've combined them together. And I'll say for me at least, now I haven't traveled a lot of places. I'm not a very cultured person in many ways. But for me, it's at least the closest I've had to like authentic Mediterranean food. And, and it's really, really good. I mean, everything they do there is great. Shawarma, pita and, hum, pita and hummus, falafel, the whole nine yards. Just everything you would want in sort of that category of food, they've got it. Really, really good spot to eat. They have what I think is the best falafel in the city of Knoxville. And I realize those are, those are massive statements to make, right? Because Knoxville has some pretty good falafel. But I think theirs is the best. It, it's always freshly cooked. It's nice and crispy on the outside, soft on the inside. It's just perfect in every way. My favorite, best falafel in Knoxville. But do you know who doesn't think they have the best falafel in Knoxville? My friend William Bitterman. <laughs> William is a member here at City Church. Um, he went there one day. He tried this fantastic falafel that they make. And, and he called it, and I'm, I'm quoting directly from him now, he, he thinks it tastes like trash. <laughs> which, which is just an aggressively wrong opinion. Do you know what I mean? Like, just aggressively wrong. Like, you, you can say you don't like it there, or that you think other places have better falafel, or you can even say, I don't particularly care for falafel. You could say all of those things, and you'd be wrong, but you could say those things, right? <laughs> Like, you could say that, but to call it trash is just so unnecessary, right? And inaccurate. I mean, it's almost like, like when, when I heard that William said that about it, I was like, something must be wrong with his taste buds. Like, we need to get him to a doctor because that is verifiably untrue about their falafel. It, it's almost like something is wrong because he's saying that something absolutely wonderful in every way is repulsive to him. Now, the reason I tell you that story, aside from just wanting to make fun of my friend William, is because I wonder if something similar hasn't happened with our gut feelings, many of us, towards the words confession and repentance. I, I wonder if, if maybe we have unnecessary reactions, negative reactions to those words. I, I wonder if our taste buds, so to speak, aren't actually off when it comes to those two words. I wonder if we haven't decided that two of the most beautiful, life-giving ideas in the universe are actually bad for us or undesirable. And so this morning, I want to see if we can change some of that in how we think about these concepts. Does that sound good? Are you all thinking about falafel now? That's probably my fault. My bad on that. Feel free to go to Copita after this. This sermon is sponsored by Copita, so just head on over there, have some lunch. All right, so let's start off this morning with our glimpse of heaven from the Revelation passage that we just heard read. I won't work back through it again, but just from a few moments ago, as you read that passage from Revelation 21, I would imagine probably a couple of things stood out from it. So first, there was a lot of light imagery in it, right? It said that in the new heavens and the new earth, there won't be a sun or a moon because we won't need a sun or a moon for our light source, but that instead, God himself 
will be the only light that we need. That's the first idea in that passage. And then in the last verse or two, it also said that in the new heavens and new earth, nothing impure will ever be there. And, and, and no one will ever enter the new heavens and the new earth that do anything that is shameful or deceitful. It used that language. These two separate ideas in that passage. Now, those may seem like different ideas, but really they're two ways of saying the same thing. In the Bible, really from cover to cover, light is a metaphor for God or God's presence, while darkness is a metaphor for sin or maybe the, the shame associated with sin. So we see this in the opening pages of Genesis. We see it in Isaiah when it talks about the arrival of the Messiah onto the scene. We see it in the beginning of the Gospel of John. We see it in all sorts of different places in the Bible. So when the passage talked about God being light and how nothing impure will ever be present there, those are really just two ways of articulating the same idea. What they're trying to say is that one day in the future, when the new heavens and the new earth is our reality, we will experience a system where sin is no longer present in our world at all. We will experience a reality where sin is no longer present, which, in the context of this series that we're in, might make you think, okay, how do we practice for that aspect of heaven where sin is not going to be present? Because if you're looking at the same world I'm looking at, there seems to be plenty of sin and brokenness and injustice to go around, right? Like, it, it doesn't seem like a sin-free existence is in the cards for us anytime soon. Until Jesus comes back, we aren't going to experience a sin-free environment or a sin-free world. But we can practice for that day in the future by identifying and removing sin from our own hearts and minds at an individual level. And according to the scriptures, that happens through a process called confession and repentance. So let's kick things off with some definitions. What do we mean when we use the word confession and the word repentance? We could probably define these words a few different ways, but here's the definitions I'll work off of for this morning. First, Confession is simply being honest about your sin. Being honest about your sin. And repentance is turning from your sin and turning towards Jesus. Confession is being honest about your sin. Repentance is turning from your sin and turning towards Jesus. So this morning, what we're going to do is spend the first half of the teaching or so on confession and then spend the second half or so on repentance, because they go together, which we're going to talk about here in a little bit. Let's start with confession. One of the clearest places in the Bible that unpacks this idea of confession is in 1 John chapter 1. So in theory, you're already open there and wondering why we haven't read it yet, so let's pick it up in verse 5. It says, this is the message that we have heard from him, Jesus, and declare to you. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all, i.e., what we just read about in our Revelation passage, right? God equals light, sin equals darkness. He's picking up on that idea here, which means, verse 6, if we claim to have fellowship or relationship or intimacy or oneness with God and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. So if you think about it, that logic checks out. 
right? If God is light, if in him is no darkness at all, then it would follow that anyone who claims to have fellowship or close relationship with God but walks in darkness would have to be lying, right? Because that's not possible. Not possible to have both of those things be true of you at the same time. But there's another option. Look at verse 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. More on that here in a few. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Verse 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all righteous, un- unrighteousness. So the other option, John says, as opposed to walking in the darkness, is to choose to walk in the light, which he clarifies next, refers to the act of confession, being honest about our sin. Now I want you to notice, we are only given two options in this passage. Did you catch that? So option A is you walk in darkness by continuing in sin and not confessing it. Or option B, you confess your sin, as we're going to see in a second, to both God and others. Option A, option B. There is no option C. So there's not a third category where, like, we know that we have sin, that we need to confess, and we understand that about ourselves, but we're kind of a private person, and we like to keep to ourselves, and we don't really like to focus on the negative about us. We don't like to air our dirty laundry, so we kind of just keep our sin to ourselves and don't really talk about it. We just ignore it and try to do better. If that is your response, according to First John, that would put you in category A, walking in darkness, right? There, there's not an in-between option. The way to be sure that we are walking in the light of God's presence and grace is to confess our sin ongoingly. But also, I want you to notice why it says that we confess our sins, the reason for it. It says here that the reason we confess is because we know that when we do, the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. So there's that language again, right, of impurity and purity. While Jesus clarifies us, while he cleanses us with his sin, that happens as a result of confession. When we confess, the process of Jesus cleansing us for our sin happens. God, it says, is faithful and just and will forgive us as well as purify us from our sin. So here's the idea. The good news about Jesus has already outed you and I as sinners, That's already decided. We should not have any pretense about that at all as followers of Jesus. By deciding to follow Jesus and accepting his free gift of grace towards us as followers of Jesus, we are inherently acknowledging that a relationship with God is not something we could accomplish on our own. We are inherently acknowledging that we needed him to do what was effective in that relationship. That's assumed in the whole thing. It's kind of the main part of following Jesus, of beginning a relationship with Jesus. Romans 3 puts it this way. If you've been around church very long, you've probably heard this verse before. It says, for all. How many? All. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. 
So this is the reality for all followers of Jesus. We understand that that is true of us. If you were hoping that you could follow Jesus and maintain the illusion that you are a perfect person, I have terrible news for you. You've made a huge mistake, right? Because the whole idea is understanding that we are sinful and in need of God's grace. That's the basis of the entire relationship with Jesus in the first place. Now, once you realize that, all confession is, is owning that reality about you. It's realigning yourself with the truth that you've already testified is true about you. It's, it's simply saying, yes, I know I am a sinner. I realize that about me. I am a sinner. Now, it's important to mention here that you're not only a sinner, you are also a human being that is made in the image and the likeness of God, but something called sin has infiltrated your heart and your mind and done damage to the image of God in you and his purposes for you in the world, which makes you and I and everyone in this room in need of God's mercy and transformation. So when we confess, we are simply intentionally acknowledging our need for God's mercy in specific arenas of our life. That's what it means to confess our sin. But I think all of that raises the practical question, uh, acknowledging it to who? Or to whom? I never know how that grammatical rule works exactly. But who are we confessing our sin to? Because if you grew up in more of like a Catholic tradition, the answer to that question is the, the priest, right? You, you go into a confession booth, you tell the priest what you did wrong, and then the priest tells you what you need to do to absolve yourself of that sin, to be forgiven. But you may have noticed there are no confession booths in our building. If you're new, you won't find those anywhere. You'll find a lot of buildings that have, a lot of rooms that haven't been renovated yet, but you will not find any confession booths in our building. And neither I or the other leaders of City Church are particularly itching to be the person that you confess all your sins to. So, so the question then is, who does this happen with? Who do I confess my sins to exactly? Biblically, the answer to that is twofold. We confess sin to God, and we confess to each other. We confess to God, and we confess to each other. It's both and when it comes to confession. So we confess our sin to God first because all sin is first and foremost against him, right? We go to God in prayer and we say, God, I've sinned against you in these specific ways. If you want an example of what a prayer of confession looks like, Psalm 51 in the Bible is a great example of what a prayer of confession looks like. So we confess to God first, but we also confess to each other. So we get this from passages like James chapter 5 where it says, confess your sins to each other that you may be healed. But we also get it from passages like 1 John, the one that we just read. I don't know if you noticed, but that passage just said that when we confess our sin, we have fellowship with each other. Did you see that? You almost expect it to say we have fellowship with God, and that's true, but it actually says as a result of confession, we have fellowship with each other. The idea is that when we confess our sin to one another, we see ourselves more accurately and we see one another more accurately as a result. When we are honest with others about our sin, we can no longer in good faith situate ourselves over and above them in self-righteousness because they know the truth about us. 
which means when we confess, it not just restores right relationship with God, it also restores right relationship with each other. That's part of what confession accomplishes. If you want to see a community of people kill self-righteousness in their midst, watch what happens when every person in that community regularly confesses their sin. You'll find that self-righteousness and spiritual pride just start to vanish in their midst. And you'll find that a culture of grace and compassion and mercy start to build in its place. That's the fruit of confession. That's one of the many reasons that we participate in it. Now, it's worth noting that biblically, confession is just step one of a two-step process. That's the idea in the Bible. It's just step one of a two-step process. Confession is not an end in itself, but rather a means to an end, because on its own, confession doesn't actually change us, right? I can go around confessing my sin all day long and still remain stuck in the same sin afterwards. Confession is the first step towards freedom, but it doesn't accomplish freedom on its own. We also need repentance, not to mention that if we're not careful, we can participate in a version of confession without even being followers of Jesus. We can participate in confession without being motivated by the gospel at all, and here's why. Right now, our society tends to value things like openness and honesty and vulnerability and authenticity. That's sort of a buzzword, or at least was a year or two ago. Our culture values things like that. And confession, at least on the surface, can just seem like one of those things, right? It can just feel like I'm being real, I'm being authentic, I'm being vulnerable. You can practice a version of confession without even being a follower of Jesus. So you could be in one of our life groups right now and just be an incredibly open and vulnerable person and be fitting right in but not necessarily be following Jesus because confession at least runs parallel to things that our culture already values. What runs in the complete opposite direction of things that our culture values is repentance. In our society, repentance is choosing to swim directly upstream against the current. Because remember, repentance is turning from your sin and turning to Jesus. Which means, at least to a lot of people, it feels like, repentance feels like denying parts of who you are or at the bare minimum, things that you really, really like and really, really want. And the society that you and I live in considers that to be basically cultural heresy. One of our culture's highest values is to, quote, be true to yourself. We hear that message dozens of times every week. We hear it in the shows that we watch, the books that we read, the ads that we see. Nearly everywhere in our world, we are told to be true to ourselves. Be true to yourself is about the only universally agreed upon doctrine in our society. So the moment that you start talking about something like repentance, which is quite literally denying yourself, forsaking your sin, and turning towards Jesus, you will often be accused in our society of saying something that is harmful and oppressive or cruel to the person you're saying it to. But let's just talk about that mantra, be true to yourself, for just a second. I think sometimes that one goes unexamined, and maybe it should be examined if we're all going to align our lives with it, right? Just for fun, does anybody know where that phrase, be true to yourself, originated? 
That's where it started. Any English majors in the room? It comes from Shakespeare's play, Hamlet. To thine own self be true, is how it's worded there. But do you know who delivers that line in the play? It's a character named Polonius, who is essentially the village idiot in the story. He is the butt of every joke. He makes horrible decision after horrible decision. And in the part of the play where he delivers that line, to thine own self be true, it is in the context of completely tone-deaf advice that he is giving to his kids. So there you have it. Modern society has gone all in on the advice of a fool from a fictional play. I'll let you draw all the conclusions you want to draw about us from that. But on a slightly more serious note, be true to yourself is not just bad advice, it's actually nonsensical. It actually doesn't get us anywhere. For instance, what version of myself should I be true to? Should I be true to the version of myself that wants to eat fast food and soda for every meal for the rest of my life? Or should I be true to the version of myself that wants to live past the age of 45, right? <laughs> At some point, I'm going to have to suppress one of those selves. Should I be true to the version of myself that wants to ridicule and shame every person that shares a stupid opinion on the internet? Or should I be true to the version of myself that wants friends one day, right? I mean, at some point, I've got to deny one of those selves. And we can make more serious cases for that, but do you see what I, where I'm going there? I mean, each one of us is a complex collection of selves that has all kinds of conflicting desires from one another at any given moment. So saying be true to yourself it is actually completely unhelpful. Which version of myself should I be true to exactly? So followers of Jesus live by a much better mantra than be true to yourself, and it's this, be true to your new self. Be true to your new self. Look on the screen with me at Ephesians 4, verses 22 through 24. This is where I get this one from. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Be true to your new self. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, God has given you a new self, a new life, a new hope, a new future. You have been granted a new self that looks different from the old one, that fights for what is true and good and beautiful in yourself and in the world at large. And repentance is choosing to put off, to cast aside the old self over and over again and to choose instead the new self made available to us through Jesus. That's a much better mantra to live by. Repentance is the process of choosing time and time again to forsake our sin, to turn from our sin and turn toward Jesus. Excuse me. So let's get practical for a bit before we're done about how to repent. What does it look like, practically speaking, to participate in putting off the old self, putting on the new? Now, we'll say, when it comes to repentance, uh, it can be a little bit more like choose your own adventure, for lack of a better term. Uh, when you repent, there are several different methods for going about repentance, and you might want to use one of them or two of them or all of them, just depending on what it is that you're repenting of. 
exactly. And hopefully that'll make sense here in just a second. So what I'm going to do is just give you the big ideas, three different methods, different ways of going about repentance, and I'll just trust the Holy Spirit in you and in other followers of Jesus that know you to help you sort through which one or ones would be most helpful to you. Does that make sense? So a few different methods for repentance. First is elimination. Elimination. One strategy for repentance is what we might call elimination. There are some temptations that are so strong and so constant that one of the best strategies, at least in the short term, is to just completely remove those temptations from your view. This is what Paul gets at when he tells people in 1 Corinthians to, quote, flee from sexual immorality. Sometimes the best thing to do if you want to turn from your sin and turn towards Jesus is to just get as far away from your particular temptation as possible. To do your best to eliminate those temptations from your immediate surroundings or to remove yourself from those situations. So I know people that have traded in their smartphone for essentially a dumb phone, right? Either because their smartphone was a temptation when it came to looking at porn or just because the constant apps and influx of information on their phone was distracting them from things that mattered in life, from actual relationships with real people. I know people that have deleted the Instagram app off of their phone because they started realizing that the more they looked at Instagram, the more they were discontent in the life and the possessions that God had given them, and the more they were starting to envy other people's life and other people's possessions. So that was a, a process of elimination. It was, it was distancing ourselves from our particular temptations. I know people who have gone through their pantry at their house and taken out any and all junk food because they knew that overeating and looking to food for comfort and peace was a temptation for them. I know people that have personally decided not to go places that serve beer or wine because they've noticed a regular tendency in them towards drinking more than they should. All of these things are examples of people using elimination as a strategy for repentance, just getting their particular temptations as far away from them as possible to eliminate unnecessary contact with them. Sometimes that's a great method for repentance. But then second, number two, there's also accountability. There's also accountability. So the reality is that there are some temptations that you can't just eliminate from your life, right? If your tendency is to obsess over work or overworking, it's not like you can just not have a job, right? Or maybe you shouldn't. Maybe I'm telling you that for the first time this morning. You shouldn't just quit your job if that's your particular temptation. If your tendency, for instance, is to obsess over your kid's environment or obsess unhealthily over keeping them safe, it's not like you can just ship your kids off forever so that you don't struggle with it anymore, right? That elimination won't work in that scenario. Sometimes you can't do that. So in that setting, accountability might be the more practical option for repentance. It might look like having a friend or two or three that can, you can let into the, the specifics of one particular temptation so that they can regularly ask you questions and check in with you about it. So if it's work, if your tendency is to be a workaholic and to overwork, overdevote your time and your energy to that, it might look like letting somebody know who cares for you that you're obsessing over work and giving them questions to ask you to identify it and help you resist it. 
If it's controlling your kid's environment, like I mentioned, maybe letting somebody know so that they can check in with you and remind you of who God is in the midst of that when it happens. If your temptation is towards gossiping about other people, maybe it's telling somebody who's around you that that is a tendency in you so that they can hold you accountable as soon as you start doing it. Sometimes accountability is an equally good way or maybe even the only way to walk in repentance in certain areas. So maybe accountability is a good practical step for you when it comes to repentance. And lastly, there's replacement. Number three is replacement. Sometimes a great step of repentance is to replace whatever your particular tendencies are towards sin with something better. Because remember, the goal of following Jesus isn't just to remove sin from your life, but also to add righteousness to your life. Does that make sense? So it's not just to eliminate vices, but also cultivate virtues. So sometimes repentance, look like, repentance looks like replacing the bad in your life with good. So for example, the next time you are tempted, say, to objectify another person, Maybe you could let that be a prompt to look the other way and to take a second to remember that that person is an image bearer of God with a heart and a soul and a story and a history, and maybe you take a second to pray for them in that moment. The next time you're tempted to spend money on something you absolutely do not need, you could choose not to do that, but to instead find a way to use that same amount of money to bless someone else with something they do need. Again, if it's gossip, maybe instead of saying something negative about a person who's not present, maybe you look for ways to build that person up, to say positive things about them, things you're thankful for them about. Sometimes the best way to repent is actually to replace, to replace temptations to sin with opportunities to pursue what is good and right and beautiful and in line with God's kingdom in the world. So elimination, accountability, replacement. I think those are three different methods to practically help us turn from our sin and practically turn toward Jesus. And like I said, it's going to take some wisdom on your part, some guidance from the Holy Spirit, some counsel from other followers of Jesus to help you discern whether one of those or two of those or all of those are needed for you in various scenarios. It's going to take some discernment and some wisdom. But hopefully that at least gives us some steps to think on as we leave today. Now, last thing I'll mention, and then we'll be done. There's a good chance that when you do any of those three things, it's going to feel unnatural to you at first. Very possible. It's going to feel, to use those buzzwords again, fake or inauthentic. But I think that's when we have to remember, we have to reset ourselves on the reality that as followers of Jesus, there is a much higher objective than being true to ourselves. There's being true to our new selves. There's aligning ourselves with the kingdom of Jesus who invites us out of our sin and into his grace, out of darkness and into the light. And through that, learning to live a little bit less like earth and a little bit more like heaven. And that's what we're after as followers of Jesus. I'd love to pray for you as we close.
Father, thank you for the scriptures. Um, God, thank you that they teach us what is, uh, what is good for us, even if it's uh, what feels unnatural to us at first. Um, God, we acknowledge uh, this morning that, that sin has truly impacted every single aspect of our world, every single aspect of ourselves. But God, with that, at the same time, we acknowledge that you have sent your son, Jesus, to undo the effects of sin on our hearts and on our world. God, that you've sent him to bring light into darkness. That you sent him to be what we could not be because of our sin. That you sent him to do what we could not do in accomplishing right relationship with you and showing us how to walk in obedience in response to that. And so God, we ask this morning that by your spirit, you would help all of us in this room who call ourselves followers of Jesus to walk in that reality, that you would cause every single person in this room to to walk in openness and honesty about our sin. Maybe some of us need to remember to do that for the 700th time in our life and our walk with you, and maybe some of us need to be reminded to do that for the very first time this morning. Maybe this morning, for the very first time, some of us say, hey, I've never told anybody this, but I'd love to I'd love to admit that this is an aspect of my life and I don't want it to be an aspect of my life anymore. God, the freedom that can start with that sort of confession will absolutely change any person who wants to participate in it. And so God, this morning, I pray that by your spirit, you would prompt that in us, that we would be willing to be honest about our sin with you and to others and that through that we would be led to repentance and we would walk in obedience to who you are and what you want of us because it is the true and better way to live. So God, if there's any resistance in us, if there's any reluctance in our souls to be honest about who we really are, God, I I pray that you would squash it in this moment, that you would help us to see that there is no expectation on us to be perfect. There's no expectation on us to be the perfect follower of Jesus, to have it all together. In fact, you have told us that we need your grace because none of us are capable of doing that on our own. And so God, if anything, I just ask that you would help us acknowledge that about ourselves this morning. That we wouldn't hide from it, that we wouldn't run from it, that we wouldn't resist it, that we would open up our hearts and say, here's who I am, here's who I've been all along, but I want something different. I want to live into my new self. God, we thank you for the cross and the resurrection that makes all of that possible. We ask that you would work in our midst this morning. God, we ask that in your name. Amen.